0: the African Defense Review podcast once more with me, Richard Stupart. Today, we're back in South Sudan to catch up on the situation over the last few weeks with photojournalist Adrian Ohanesian. Welcome to the podcast, Adrian. Thank you. Looking at South Sudan, can I ask you to quickly give us a, a point of view of where we are now in the process? So there's been a peace accord, is, is that correct?
1: Yeah, well, on the 23rd of January, um, Machar side, the ex-vice president, um, signed the ceasefire agreement with uh, President Selvigir. Um And that ceasefire was supposed to take effect um, about 24 hours after it was signed. Um, but I believe even before um, it took effect, both sides were accusing the other side of already breaking that ceasefire.
0: And what has the rebel strategy been so far? There was the initial takeover of Boar, and then uh, there were theories that the long-term idea would be that they would threaten the oil fields or that they're not entirely sure. Has there been any kind of of logic to to the Machar's faction's actions so far?
1: Well, I think that's part of the problem with the entire ordeal, really, is what the strategy is, Um, beginning from the 15th of December, when the violence first broke out, um, obviously the The president's side has accused Machar of a coup. Uh, Machar has denied that. So starting from the very beginning of this conflict, it has been completely uncertain as to what the actual motives were for Machar's forces, if it was even planned by Machar's forces, or it was um, a different agenda that President Zalbikir had. Um, So it's really, from the beginning, it's been quite vague as to what, each of these sides are trying to get out of the situation. And I think that's a problem as well, leading into the peace talks, um, just because what what do these sides want? Um, Machar has made it clear that he wants Kir to step down. Um, Kir obviously is not willing to step down. Um, so
0: where that leaves everyone,
1: it, it kind of um, remains to be seen. Um, and again, it's still really vague as to what... Um, each of these side's motives are in the long run.
0: And in terms of the strength of Machar's forces compared to what the the government itself proper is is wielding, it certainly seems like the government has had trouble taking back some of the areas, Bohr in particular, that that were initially conquered by the rebels. Is there any clarity on on the strength of the rebel groups?
1: Um, I'm not sure the exact size of Machar's forces, um, but Machar has said, that if it weren't for Uganda stepping in and helping out uh, Salva Kiir's SPLA forces, uh, Machar stated that um, he would be in Juba by now with his forces. Um, whether or not he meant that they would have tried to overthrow Kiir as president and he would have stepped into that position is unclear. Um, but everyone has been very surprised at the, um, the strength of Machar's forces. Um, but also you have a lot of people, especially the newer, who um, either deserted uh, Kiyo's forces and joined, joined the anti-government forces, or you also have groups like the White Army stepping up uh, to also fight against the government forces. So you have, you have different groups all joining forces um, on one side or the other. You also have GEM, the Justice and Equality Movement. Uh, Backing uh, Salva Kiir's forces, and they're a group originally out of Darfur who have actually been spotted um, specifically in Unity State and around Bantu. So both sides are actually receiving support from various rebel movements within. Sudan and South Sudan.
0: Can I maybe ask you to talk a little bit about those two other groups of so the White Army and JEM? I mean, what, what is known about their their presence in South Sudan now? Who's coordinating them? A lot of the, the press coverage focuses mostly on Machar's primary faction.
1: Well, the White Army is a group of Nuer youth um, out of Jonglei State, which is a primarily Nuer area to begin with. Um, so they they really stepped in in the thousands um, to support. Magyar's forces, um, and, and really seem to be have strength in numbers there. Um, in terms of justice and equality movement, they've been involved in a couple of different struggles in South Sudan. Um, they backed the SPLA uh, a couple of years ago when the SPLA stepped in uh, and moved up north into Sudan and the oil fields in Heglig. So Jem was president at that time, supporting the SPLA. Um, And again, there have been reports of them um, coming down from South Kordofan, where they're mainly based now, and again, supporting the SPLA troops. Um, The interesting thing about JEM is they've actually been fighting um, alongside the SPLA North um, in South Kordofan against uh, the Sudan armed forces. So it's an interesting... (laughs) It's an interesting situation where they're supporting SPLA North, but they're also supporting um, the SPLA in the South against uh, Machara's forces. But again, it, it could very well be um, an opportunistic move on their part, uh, because they are, they're known to come in and come in for the fight uh, and pretty much gather as much, uh, the they get involved in the looting quite a bit. So it's hard to say, if they're really on the side of the SPLA and the, and the president's forces, or they're just there to join the party and get some ammunition, cars, weapons, whatever they can loot, and then travel back up north.
0: And so the White Army, how well equipped or, or trained is that? And, and certainly how well under the command of Machar and his generals are, are they likely to be?
1: Well, that's another question as well. On both sides, actually, Selvukir's uh, forces and Machar's forces is how well and how much of a stronghold they have over their troops and whether or not um, some of these groups just decided to take up arms in kind of an opportunistic way. Um, but the White Army, again, is, is mainly um, younger, younger boys um, in rural jungle state. Um, they're said to pretty much have a collection of bows and arrows and maybe some AKs. But I think their force is really in, in numbers. And again, it's hard to, to throw a number at, at how many um, young boys we're talking about.
0: And the Ugandan intervention, what are the grounds from Uganda's point of view for their intervention, and what exactly have they contributed so far?
1: Well, Uganda really stepped in um, during the fighting in Boer um, to back Kiir's forces because um, at that point in time, I I seriously believe, and I heard the number thrown out that the the fighting was about forty five percent controlled by Riek Machar's forces, and about fifty five percent STLA. So it really seemed for a while that it was it was close in terms of um, uh, military power. Uh, but Uganda's interest, I think, in this whole in this whole process is uh, trade with South Sudan. I think they have they have an interest in stability um, because the trade um, with South Sudan is I think is the highest earner of income for Uganda at this point um, most products come up through, through Kampala to Juba, so that's a serious concern for Uganda economically um, to have a stable trading partner
0: and overall do you think the Ugandan presence will be enough to, to crush the, the rebels? I know One of Machar's demands, I believe, prior to the the peace agreement was that Uganda should leave before they'd they'd continue to negotiate.
1: Yeah, um, I think it it was enough at that point in time. Um, And again, Machar seemed fairly confident that if Uganda hadn't stepped in, uh, that he actually stated that if it weren't for the Ugandan forces, uh, his anti-government forces would be in Juba at this point in time. So I think that really was a determining factor in uh, the retaking of Boer. Um, but it's hard to say whether or not Machai's forces will actually, or actually have been, crushed um, since the ceasefire. We've seen uh, the government forces reclaim key towns like Bentu and Malakal and Boer, of course. Um, but there's there's been reported fighting in Jonglei, Unity, Lake State, and Upper Nile since the ceasefire. So whether or not the forces... Uh, the anti- anti-government anti forces have actually been crushed, per se, is is hard to say. Or they're just kind of pulled out from the main towns and, um, and are keeping quiet for the time being.
0: And where are Machar's forces drawing resources from? So in the short run, I believe there was plundering of UN bases and, and other installations. Do they have other sources of revenue? I mean, who's paying the men and, and providing fuel and other equipment?
1: I actually think both sides, um, both Kir and Machar's forces, are benefiting tremendously um, out of looting um, but as well they they're kind of going back and forth um, and raiding each other's stores as well so I can imagine when Machar's forces moved into a town or possibly took territory from the government they were reclaiming weapons tanks cars ammunition um, from the from the government forces, And, I mean, it goes back and forth as well as soon as the SPLA government forces take over an area from Machar's forces, they're going to gain the same things back. So to a certain extent, they're probably fueling each other. Um, And also you have the rating of UN bases, um, NGO clinics, uh, UN cars, WFP warehouses. Um, So that's also... Um, been keeping them going
0: and have both factions been raiding NGOs um, I'm not I'm not sure who's been doing the raiding
1: of specific NGOs um, both sides have been accused of raiding uh, warehouses um, with food both sides have also been accused of stealing um, vehicles um, and civilians have also been been looting as well um, there's just been a complete breakdown of law and order, um, so I think it's really a situation of survival of the fittest in some of these areas, where if you don't go and, and steal that food, um, you're probably not going to survive. So um, I think I don't think any any or any side uh, of this conflict um, they're both guilty of of severe raiding on. Uh, UN bases, etc Most and of the towns are completely flattened and raided at this point.
0: And in the inter- relocation of people fleeing the fighting, oh, what have, what sort of centers are emerging as places where, where IDPs are collecting?
1: Uh, this is a huge concern as well just because of the magnitude of the fighting as well as, I mean, the fighting is spread to most every state in South Sudan. So I think at this point, um, just within South Sudan itself, there's over half a million IDPs. Um, I was spending time in one of the largest IDP camps, Minkaman, in Awuriel, um, in Lake State, which is just across the river from Bor. Um, And at one point in time, there were 80-plus thousand people in that area. But again, a couple weeks ago, fighting broke out between Kirmachar's forces um, and the fighting pretty much approached into that camp and caused people to flee into the bush again. So it's been really difficult um, to kind of round people up in a secure location uh, to be able to access um, these IDPs so they can receive food and medical supplies. Um, so it's been a very difficult process for uh, there's been multiple times when NGOs um, and the UN have been forced to evacuate due to continued fighting that's broken, around, broken out around uh, where these people have fled.
0: And what has the UN and, and government of South Sudan's capacity been to defend the various camps? So clearly in that case, not so much. Um, or is it just not a priority Is versus chasing after Machar's forces?
1: I think everyone, UN and NGOs alike, have really been pushed to the limit in terms of trying to deal with the excessive amount of people. It's just, it's overwhelming for anyone. Um, in the UN base in Juba alone, uh, there's well over 23,000 people, um, so you can imagine getting food and water and keeping um, that many people in somewhat sanitary conditions is quite challenging. But again, a lot of, a lot of these people have fled. To very rural areas, access is difficult logistically, um, and again, you have um, outbreaks of violence uh, throughout the country. So, in terms of uh, in terms of security, it's also a huge challenge.
0: And related to that, how easy has it been for aid to come through? So the major aid corridor, as you say, is going up through often Uganda, Gulu through to Juba and then beyond, sometimes all airlifts. I mean, how easy has it been for aid to cross the front line for to reach people behind? So in Machar's controlled area of South Sudan.
1: Um, from what I understand, for the most part, Machar's forces haven't, specifically targeted, um, aid groups. Uh, there are groups I know that are working, I have been working, um, within, uh, Machar's territory. So, but the main part is accessing these people because the areas are so rural. And even if one side has control over a certain territory, it's changed hands so many times that it's hard to, it's hard to know, um, if you're in a secure area or not. As in Mincaman, we found out um, one morning when violence just erupted south of the camp, and the entire camp, including 120 um, NGO staff, were forced to flee. So it's, it's difficult working in these areas when uh, either side um, or both sides come into contact with these, um, with these areas of IDPs are.
0: And just going back to talking about outside actors, has Sudan showed any interest in in the fighting at all, or have they mostly stayed out of the situation?
1: Uh, it seems Bashir did take a trip to Juba, I believe. Um, but for the most part, I think they've they've stayed they've stayed out of it. Obviously, um, Sudan has uh, interest in South Sudan's stability for uh, the oil. Um, Unity States and Upper Nile. A lot of the oil workers were caused to to flee, but for the most part, I think Sudan has um, an interest in keeping the cells stable, um, just for their own economic interests. I think at this point, Bashir can't really afford to have the oil turned off again, because uh, that's really all he has to rely on economically at the moment.
0: And is there a danger that the oil fields are being threatened? There was there was talk about a special UN force to secure them at one point.
1: Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a threat, um, and a lot of oil workers were, uh, had fled the area. There was some violence, um, or has been a lot of violence in Unity State and that now, where the main oil fields are. Um, I'm not entirely sure uh, what the capacity is right now. I don't think they're pumping at full capacity for the oil, but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure on the figures of, of how much oil is still flowing.
0: Has there been any indication from Machar that targeting or controlling the oil fields was, is part of the strategy or, I mean, has there been any indication I suppose from Machar as to what the strategy is from their point of view militarily?
1: Yeah. From the beginning, the whole, the whole scenario has been a bit sketchy in terms of what, um, what the intention was if Machar actually had a strategy or if Kier had a strategy in, in provoking the violence that broke out in mid-December, um, and these these strategies are still unclear. So again, uh, going to the table and trying to come up with a ceasefire with Kier saying, "Of course, he won't step down and hand over the presidency," and Lachar saying it's unacceptable to have someone like Kier in power. Um, it really has remained a bit hazy in terms of what the strategy was, if there was any strategy at all.
0: So with the breakup of the, the army into factions supporting Machar and faction supporting Kir, do you know whether many senior officers uh, defected to Machar's side?
1: Um, I think for the most part, uh, any anyone who is newer has, has fled to Machar's side or supported um, Machar. Um, and I think, you know, it's been a really big debate as to whether or not this is a political conflict or whether or not this is an ethnic or tribal conflict. And I think the answer to that is it's, it's both. Um, obviously, the roots uh, are tied politically because this is a political struggle. You have the president against the ex vice president, but you also you can't separate politics from tribe or ethnicity in South Sudan. So I think this idea um, that it's not an ethnic conflict uh, is incorrect. I mean it. From day one, on the 15th and 16th um, of December, uh, it became an ethnic struggle um, between between Dinka and Noor. So for the most part, um, it's been Noor siding siding with uh, Machar's forces. This isn't to say that all Noor, um are with Machar and all Dinka are with uh, Kihir, but um, for the most part, that's seemed to be the way it
0: Anyway, it's gone and had been sort of clear to claim that as you said he's not this wasn't isn't to be interpreted as a coup um, how does i mean how does he square those claims with then occupying ball for example or making threats on marching into the capital
1: that's the difficult that's the difficult part about the situation um, he hasn't come out and said that he would like to be president but he has come out and said that here needs to step down from the presidency. So whether or not that means he has the intention to become president is is still a bit unclear.
0: And I would, overall with the, the conflict, what do you feel is the trajectory of it at the moment? Is it still, so yes, the peace agreement's been signed. I mean, do you feel that things are starting to calm down or that it's really just sitting in a kind of unstable phase at the moment?
1: I think it's definitely sitting in an un- unstable phase. Um, It's great that there's been a ceasefire agreement, but what what does that really solve? I think that's more a step um, for the international community to feel like there's some some steps forward. But in terms of the situation on the ground, um, again, Kier still firmly believes that he should be president, and Machar still firmly believes that Kier should step down. So... um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult situation to say what will happen. But uh, in terms of the situation on the ground, I don't believe there's been many steps forward to resolve um, resolve the situation politically or for the civilians um, because you have hundreds of thousands of people who displaced from their homes and these people have seen horrific horrific acts committed by both sides. So now you do have a government who went around Juba, for example, and and slaughtered North civilians, went door to door in parts of the capital, and slaughtered entire um, communities of people. So what do you do with all of these civilians who are hiding out in UN bases um, and fear for their lives if they step even a few meters from the base? Um, Not just on the Dinka side, but also on the North side you have Machar's forces committing mass killings towards Dinka. So in terms of some kind of reconciliation for those civilians as well, um, that's going to have to be something that's discussed. And and there needs to be some resolution as well as to um, whether or not people are going to be charged with these horrific acts and mass killings that have been going on. Um, people don't like to discuss the fact that you now have a government in place uh, that's responsible for mass killings.
0: And when when the conflict broke out, to a lot of people, when it happened, it, it kind of blindsided people. There was the criticism that a lot a lot of the aid agencies and in the international community involved in in South Sudan had glossed over a lot of fault lines to in this sort of rush to create a new nation. Um, and it just wasn't, in fact, blindsided, but just was not well enough reported, maybe in the, the run up to the split. I mean, how much credibility do you think is in that? I mean, how how far ahead of time were there signs that, that the split was going to happen?
1: I definitely think there was this attitude of, you know, oh, nobody ever saw this coming, nobody ever saw this coming. But I think there were signs in place, and there have always been been signs in place, that uh, tribal or ethnic violence could be a huge issue and is a huge issue in South Sudan. I mean, even, even during the war uh, in Sudan, the South killed more of its own people than the North killed Southerners. So it's been a huge issue in South Sudan for over 30 years. Um, And again, leading up up to the violence that broke out on the 15th of December, you had um, Kier forcing Machar to step down, and then you also had, as the story goes, um, the fighting broke out between the Presidential Guard, which is called the Tiger Brigade, um, and according to some of the NUR who were part of that Tiger Brigade, uh, the command came to disarm um, all the NUR in that brigade. And the first shots were fired by Dinka, uh, Dinka SPLA onto NUR SPLA. So it did start as a political struggle, but again, um, that quickly turned tribal.
0: And how, how strong, if at all, has Sudanese civil society been in all of this? Or is there are there any other actors within South Sudan who can bring Machar and Kir together or force a resolution?
1: That's been one of one of the main points um, in terms of some sort of resolution is is turning to civil society or turning to religious groups uh, to kind of take the civilian population into consideration and possibly even come up with um, an interim government to help with um, pretty much a disastrous situation for most of the civilians. Um, but so far, that doesn't seem to be something that's that's been taken into consideration.
0: And then finally, I mean, without asking you to predict the future, what, what do you think will be some of the, the most important issues that will influence how things st- stagger forward in the next few weeks?
1: Well, the... The talks are set to begin again tomorrow. Um, obviously, the ceasefire has not held. It's it's been all right in the main areas, but they're still fighting um, outside the towns. Um, so it's really it's difficult to predict what will happen. But it's definitely um, a rocky situation. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, none of the political issues um, have been. Confronted, and none of the issues of, of the civilians or what these uh, over half a million people who are displaced in their own country um, are going to do, and if there's going to be anyone held accountable for these mass killings that have been taking place. So it seems like most or not all of the main issues um, have yet to be resolved or even confronted. Um, so I think the ceasefire is, is a first step, but really... Um, kind of tries to smooth over a situation that is far from resolved.